listening to the Barcode Podcast with your host, Chris Glandon, serving cybersecurity straight up with no chaser. Let's hit the bar and grab a drink. Welcome to Barcode. I want to suck your blood. Hey, are you Tony? I'm me, man. Hey, man. Yo, Tony, where you at? Hey, Chris, what's up, dude? Welcome to the Halloween party. I'll be with you in one second. All right, man. I didn't even recognize you. Man, sorry for the wait, Chris. Hey, man. It's scary in here. Man, you have no idea, man. All the fake IDs, people trying to get in that don't even belong here. Well, you know, it's Halloween. What can we do? People are disguised. Man, let me see. What kind of booze you got back there? Oh, glad you asked. You want to impress all your friends at your next Halloween party, my friend? You know I do. I got a wicked drink. Don't answer tequila. Half ounce of triple sec. Top it with some red wine over some ice. That sounds great, man. Is this sweet red wine? Because I only usually keep a bottle of red. A bottle of whites. Whatever mood you're in tonight. <laughs> Whichever kind of red wine you're feeling. Just enjoy it. I love it. I know. We call that the Dracula Margarita. Now, if you excuse me, I got to go get these unwanted guests out of my bar. You ain't got to go home, but you can't hack here. Trick responsible. In the spirit of Halloween slash Cybersecurity Awareness Month, Barco brings you a special episode featuring a security icon who is dedicated to raising security awareness while at the same time, no stranger to disguises, duplicity, and deception. Ivor Winkler is an established author, president of Secure Mentum, a company dedicated to the human aspects of security, and considered one of the world's most influential security professionals. He has been dubbed the modern-day James Bond by the media due to the espionage simulations performed against some of the world's largest and most high-profile organizations. Ivor has designed implemented, and supported security awareness programs at organizations of all sizes, all industries around the globe. Ira, welcome to the bar, my friend. Thanks for having me. So I guess let's start with discussing how you got into security. Did something specific trigger your interest or was it something that evolved over time? It's one of those things where I never thought this would be the career I have in most ways. I mean, what happened was in general, you know, I always, growing up, always wanted to be an astronaut, a veterinarian, or a spy through a sequence of bizarre, I don't want to say bizarre events, but by default, you know, as opposed to being really great academically and being recruited or whatever to my veterinary career, as I was assuming, um, I ended up just through a series of strange events at the National Security Agency. I took a test for an organization I really didn't know much about because it kind of sounded cool and did well. And I ended up working there. Then pretty much, you know, you would think that's espionage, that's spying. As I tell people, or I wrote in my first book, NSA is more the land of Gilbert than the land of Bond. And over the years, I just ended up doing, you know, some really cool stuff, but I just thought of it as computer stuff. And then one day somebody came to me and said, can you make a few phone calls? And three days later, I had control over the one of the world's largest investment banks doing a social engineering attack. 
So anyway, that was one of those weird things. And then as a fluke, um, while I was doing all that, one time somebody came to me and said, we're working on this investigation. And it turned out to be the infamous um, Vladimir Levin Citibank investigation that I got pulled into. So I ended up doing that as well. That's wild. That's certainly an unorthodox path to take to break into this industry. Now, you've performed some absolutely insane and dangerous social engineering expeditions. You mentioned taking over a bank once. And in one particular case, I understand you were able to steal some highly classified nuclear reactor designs. Um, yeah, that was sadly easier than it should have ever been. But <laughs> I ended up, um, <laughs> you know, so after I wrote about how to take over a bank, it was called the seminal work in social engineering. And people started coming to me to do weirder and weirder things. And um, I ended up, uh, how would I phrase this? I basically um, ended up just doing these espionage simulations. And then there and that led itself to some really high profile things where, you know, one of the weirder ones, I had a friend who was talking to the um, CISO of a fortune five fortune 10 type of company. And he was frustrated because what happened, he hired pretty much all the big four firms to come in and do penetration tests. They all came back two weeks and a hundred thousand dollars later and said, we have full control of your entire network. He went to the CEO. The CEO said, I have been one of the most profitable companies in the world. I have been vulnerable. I am one of the most profitable companies in the world. I am vulnerable. I will be one of the most profitable companies in the world. So what? So then he's like, I wish I had something like this. And by that time, I wrote my first book, Corporate Espionage. And he showed this, and he ironically showed it to my friends. And my friend said, I can get him in here. And anyway, I ended up doing a, you know, one of my espionage simulations for a fortune five type of company. And which includes obviously some nuclear reactor related things. And I ended up, you know, hacking into their organization, just basically walking around, talking to people, finding all the critical data and everything like that. And that was, um, it was anticlimactic. I mean, by the time we were, I mean, because I stole the nuclear reactor design within an hour of being on the site. You know, there was obviously Jeez. some preparation to then. But by that point in time, people were asking, you know, people were like, I mean, after I did that, they're like, let's go get some HR data. And I'm like, whatever. And they're like, you're not even excited anymore. I go, you know, at some point when there's no challenge, it doesn't even matter anymore. So, <laughs> I mean, I'd love to say it's highly skilled, but, you know, I've come to believe and I've been rather critical of you know, I've, I've come to believe that, you know, like penetration tests can be generally worthless if you're not doing, like, if you're not having an impact, if you're not having a change. You know, they're not hard if you're just finding vulnerabilities that anybody could find. The fact of the matter is people love to think these criminals are geniuses, but really most of the time, all they have is the ability and the willingness to kind of you know, do bad things and, you know, going against a population who really, you know, is just, I don't want to say they're unskilled and unable to stop them, 
they're just ignorant of the problem, which lets these people who are mediocre in their skill set be incredibly successful. It could take minimal effort. It takes a willingness. Gotcha. I will say it takes a willingness and a focus, if that makes any sense at all. Because, you know, everybody says, oh, these hackers are geniuses. Like, you know, and it's, this isn't the first time it actually happened. But, for example, when the, um, the Twitter hacker, you know, everybody was saying like, oh, here's this 17-year-old mastermind. And everybody was like, let's give him a job. I'm like, why? Because he was a good liar? Because he spent more time on Twitter's security than Twitter did? Mm. I mean, unfortunately, I hate to say it, but that's not exactly, you know, a, a, a hiring point. You know, you have somebody who has nothing better to do thinking, hey, I'm going to make a few hundred thousand dollars by going ahead and doing, making some phone calls. And yeah, I'll invest a few weeks into it. You know, I mean, you act like somebody who can invest a few weeks and figure out who's the best people to lie to is some super genius as opposed to, well, gee. Because here's the other part that people don't acknowledge. You know, there's a completely different dynamic to stopping something, you know, preventing the problem than to actually accomplish the problem. Because, you know, you have a hacker. A hacker has to find one way in. It's not just a matter of the hacker found that one way in. So, therefore, let's just patch that and we're, and we're secure. The reality is, is that a security program has to say, hey, I'm not worried about the one way in. I'm worried about how can I create a secure environment that is sustainable given all the restrictions that I have. And for example, this hacker telling people you need to better educate your staff, that's like, well, no shit, Sherlock. You know, it's sort of like, well, we need to go ahead and figure out who has access to these systems. How should we implement better multi-factor authentication? How can we go ahead and do better things? How should we limit the people who have this access? How do we have secondary controls on them? It's not just a matter of telling people how to do things, you know, or telling people not to do something. It's a matter of creating an environment that does it right by default. And I use the example of, it's not hard to break a light bulb. And then it's like, oh, you broke that light bulb really well. Now go ahead and fix it or go ahead and make that light bulb. Mm. Or you have somebody who stabs someone. Somebody stabs someone. It's like, wow, they stabbed them really well. Go make them perform the surgery to fix what they stabbed. That's really the best analogy I see, you know, for the cybersecurity of hiring a hacker. Just because you know how to break something or stab at a system to cause damage doesn't mean you know how to go in and know how to fix it. It's a highly you know, it's much more involved than doing that, but also fixing it in a sustained way is the more critical point. Agreed. In an organization, training exercises such as phishing campaigns are designed to train employees to stop clicking on links that could lead to infection. When a security awareness test fails, and I've personally witnessed cases where an organization will enforce extreme disciplinary measures to the degree of terminating employment of the end user. Who would you say is to blame for the failures? Is it in any way the fault of the organization's lack of a solid training program? Or is it the user's lack of knowledge to blame? And if failure or consecutive failures of a simulation occur, 
not even an actual attack, you know, where do you draw the line? You know, in my book, you can stop stupid. Everybody should buy it. It's awesome. You know, available for pre-sale now. There goes my cheap plug. But in that book, I talk about principles out of safety science called a just culture. What a just culture is, is that you have properly trained your users. You have also given them the resources and the ability to do things correctly. And that's a critical factor that if somebody is properly trained and still violates something, yes, you blame them. And let me give you an example. So, you know, let's first do, uh, let's first have, you know, an easy example. You have a bus driver, you train the bus driver, you give the bus driver a safe bus, but, or maybe the bus isn't safe. Maybe what happens is all of a sudden a wheel falls off because the wheel wasn't properly maintained and the bus crashes. Can you blame the bus driver for that accident? You know, assuming, of course, that part of the training doesn't say every day before you go out, you inspect the bus to ensure it's safe. And, you know, the bus driver did everything they should have, but the bus still failed. You can't blame the bus driver for the bus falling apart. On the other hand, let's say you have a properly trained bus driver. He has a safe bus, but the bus driver is on his cell phone and crashes. Yes, you blame the bus driver. That's a distinct difference. And let me give you an, you know, an example of actual penetration test I had. I talk about this every so often, but there was one time I was doing my espionage simulation and it was me and I had a hacker type with me. I told him, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go in through the front door during the morning rush hour with everybody else. There's a recep- receptionist in the lobby. Just ignore the receptionist. Just keep walking with the flow with everybody else. We walk in, we end up going up the elevators, but even though there's a swipe card, everybody pretty much swipes every floor, no problem getting upstairs and, you know, getting to a floor, find an empty room. I pick up a phone. I call up the operator. I say, hi, I'm the CIO. Who do I send my contractors to, to get a badge? I get transferred around and some woman finally says, send them down to the front desk. I, me and my accomplice go down to the front desk. I say, hi, we need badges. She's like, I saw you two, you know, come in and I tried to stop you. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. We just, she's like, oh, you look busy. Don't worry about it. I'm like, oh, we're sorry. Anyway, she calls over a guard and she tells the guard, these gentlemen need badges. And the guard says, okay, takes us to the, you know, room, the guard room where they print up badges. They took our picture. And while we're sitting there waiting for these badges to print, the guard, uh, the guard says, what do you two guys do? I go, oh, we do computer stuff. Then the guard says, do you guys need access to the server room? Of course. I go, as a matter of fact, we do. So anyway, got access to the server room, you know, wait till lunchtime, end up going down there. The room is completely empty, but all the like primary domain controllers left logged on, no screen lock sit down, add a new admin user to the domain. And then pretty much as you can guess, we had control over the entire network. Now, three weeks later, I get a call and this was after I submit my report. Three weeks later, I get a call from the person claiming to be the facilities manager and the facility manager goes to me. I'm the facility manager. I need to know the name of the guard who gave you the badge. I'm like, what? And he repeats itself. I go, here's the deal. 
I'm not giving you the name of the guard who gave me the badge. I go, if you want the name of the guard, you can ask the CIO, who's the only person I report to, because frankly, you might be lying to me of who you are. He's like, I'm not lying. I go, I don't care. I'm still not giving it to you, even if you are who you say you are. And, and he's like, okay. And then I go, by the way, if the CIO asked me for the name of the guard who, give, who gave me the badge, I will give him the guard name. However, I will also tell him that the fact the guard gave me the badge is bad. The fact you don't know who that guard is, is infinitely worse. Absolutely. And the reality was, I have no idea the name of the guard who gave me the badge. You know, I can describe them physically. I didn't bother with that. And the reason was the guard wasn't doing anything wrong. The process for that organization from everything I could tell was the wonderful receptionist who everybody loves and trusts tells the guard who gets access to the server or who gets access to the building. The security staff does whatever she says. And the fact the guard can just randomly assign special accesses throughout the building, that's the fault of the security manager because there's no approval process, much like a badge should have like an authorization, you know, chain. There was no authorization chain for who's supposed to give out access to critical facilities. And, you know, I could go on, but do you blame them for that? No, I can't blame the guard for that. I blame the facility manager for not having processes in place, not having training in place if there were processes to train on. You know, likewise, you can threaten to fire a user. The question is, was that user provided, as I described before I went on this long tirade, a just culture where they were provided every opportunity and every resource required to do it right? What's ironic about that story is that you are an outsider playing the role of an insider, then after the fact, explaining to them what proper process should be, which is something that a true insider should have already known. Well, I mean, that's one of the things. Now, do I look at it that way? The question is, and I always have this other thing that I do. Whenever I go into a company, I always try to, you know, steal from the CEO or the CEO's admin assistant because nobody will ever blame them should something go wrong. And likewise, should they try to make a scapegoat out of anyone? It's like, okay, you first. You know, mm -hmm. there was one time, for example, this is telling another story. Actually, it was bizarrely true. It was almost surreal. But I was told the CEO was involved in some personal lawsuits. I can't discuss them. And they said, we need you to stay away from anything having to do with the CEO. So in order for me to stay away from a, you know, both a technical, especially a technical side, I need to know the IP addresses for the CEO's office suite. So what I did was I went up to the CEO's office suite, you know, got a company logo shirt on, you know, with a clipboard. And I, sit, I, I go to the, like he had a team of executive assistants. I go to one of them. I go, hi, we're doing a quick security assessment. I just need to double check that your antivirus software is up to place. Can I please just do a quick check on your system and, you know, just make sure I, you know, that your systems are, and she's like, sure. So anyway, I just sit down on the system, bring up a command window, type up IP config to get the IP address of the system. And then I think, okay, we'll stay away from that class C, you know? So anyway, and then the woman was like, well, what about all these other computers here? I go, well, honestly, if your computer, I, I tell the woman, 
I go, if your computer is with this, all those other computers should be the same. She's like, well, why don't you check? It's not a problem. She has all the other people get up while I sit down and type up IT config. And then she's like, well, what about Mr. So-and-so's computer? I'm like, I really don't want to bother him. And she's like, not a problem. And she tells him and the guy, the CEO gets up off his chair. I sit down at his computer. And then while I'm there, his email was open. And I just decided, what the hell? I sent a message to the security, the CISO I'm reporting to. And I just go, hey, you're doing a great job. Take the rest of the day off and hit send. And then I just turn around to the woman. I go, it looks like. You know, she comes back. I say, looks like his system's secure as well. Thanks so much. And I leave. And the CISO was like, Ira, are you going to tell me why the CEO all of a sudden cares about my well-being? I go, you're not going to believe it. But if I didn't do something like that, it would have looked weird. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's... Yeah. Yeah, and, but, you know, it's like, what are they going to do? Blame the or, you know, fire that woman for having a, a potential bad actor sit down at the CEO's computer. I mean, they should if they fire anybody in theory, but the reality was they're never going to fire her. And the fact I did that, you know, even though it didn't make it into the report, kind of protects everybody else. Right. And hopefully they learn from that and they're able to recognize that during the next exercise. So, in most of these social engineering campaigns, you are essentially playing a spy. Does that feel like a job to you? Because hearing it, it really sounds cool. And you need to have the skills of a Hollywood actor slash psychologist slash sociopath. So it seems like there's definitely a high level of complexity involved, but fun and challenging at the same time. Well, oh, oh it's definitely on the awesome side. I'm sitting there and I'm frankly trying to go ahead and, you know, do a job, act professional. But there are some times it's like, you know, I'm sitting there like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is working. You know, but at the same time, it's like it's just my mindset. You know, I'm being paid to embrace this character. And yes, I'm being paid to act. I have done some in the past, you know, and things like that. But. It's just a matter of, yeah, I'm playing a role and I take it seriously. The fact of the matter is any sociopath can kind of do the same thing. I mean, all it takes is somebody who has, you know, to a large extent to put any sense of guilt aside and say, screw them. You know, a sociopath thinks, well, I'm smarter than they are. They deserve it if I, if I trick them. And, you know, I look at it this way. When I approach it, I do, you know, I put my guilt aside because I'm like here thinking, you know, I need to know what I'm going to find because I need to figure out what's the best way to help the organization. So it does take that mindset. I once worked with a woman. I start, I should say I started working with her. And at one point I needed, you know, a woman to call somebody because that's what they were expecting. And she just couldn't, for lack of a better term, lie. And, you know, to somebody that quickly. So she went ahead and she wasn't the right person. One of the guys I work with is a former Navy SEAL. He is the paragon of virtue. And, you know, he can do it, I guess, if he's mentally prepared. But, you know, he's just not a good natural liar, which you can't fault the guy for. But, you know, he has so many other valuable skills. But, you know, he, you know, unless he's like prepared for it, he's not going to sit down and be able to quickly 
you know, lie to somebody. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, on the other hand, you have other people like my friend, Stan, former Russian, you know, he's a colonel in GRU. And I would trust his perception with my life. I mean, this was a guy we once were doing an assessment. I was doing an assessment. We walked out of the office with a former director of security, former secret service agent. And the guy, and Stan walks out with me. He's like, I don't trust this person. I'm like, it's like a former assistant director of the secret service. What do you think? He's like, I don't trust them. Anyway, the next day we find out Stan was 100,000% actually right. The guy was a scumbag. Anyway, I'll mm-hmm. leave it at that. So that could be attributed to the human intel gathering culture of the GRU, which is what most organizations are striving for now creating that retrained mind of their employees to identify red flags. You know, I've always been fascinated by magic and illusion, subconscious thinking, power of persuasion, and I found that approach often runs in parallel to cybersecurity, specifically awareness efforts. It's challenging enough to get one person to believe and begin practicing secure behavior, but the mental trigger for each individual is going to be different. So how do you effectively build that culture, that mindset at scale? Here's the problem. And I think one of the phallus, one of the biggest problems that security awareness efforts have, and again, highlight this in my book, you can't stop stupid, another cheap plug. But anyway, you go ahead and you look at it. And the problem is people treat the users in, with regard to cybersecurity in a completely ignorant and naive way. Because think of it this way, you know, what happens if somebody, you know, most organizations does not fill out their time card? They don't get paid. What happens if they don't submit, you know, like, you know, I travel and if I'm working with, you know, for a large company, either as a consultant or a direct employee, if I don't submit each and every receipt, I'm not going to be reimbursed. So if I have, a $3,000 airfare hotel bill meal, you know, expense report, and I leave off a $4.63 receipt for a Frappuccino, that whole expense report is kicked back for that $4 expense. Why? Because that's how they have trained the organization to do it. And why? Because they're concerned about financial fraud during travel, And over a period of time, they've gone ahead and said, hey, how are we going to ensure the appropriate charges are made? We want receipts. If we don't get all the receipts we want, we kick it back. Why? Because that's how people become responsive. Now, does anybody say that's not fair to the user? Did anybody ever say, oh, well, I was a nice guy and we really want to reimburse them. You know, it's only $4. Just forget about it. No. You need approval to not have the receipt, even if it's a $4 receipt. So why in security do we go ahead and not have that same mindset where when appropriate, security is a must? You know, we can't go ahead and presume every right action that somebody might theoretically take or not take, but we should have expectations for security the same way we have expectations for everything else. And by not realizing that, that's the failure of the security organization. 
It's the primary failure of security awareness people, because what they're doing is they're portraying their security efforts as a should. You know, you should have a unique password. You should go ahead and turn off your computer at the end of every day. But what happens if it's enforced as a must? You know, you're saying you're in changing the culture. The reason the culture exists is, you know, a culture is essentially the representation of how everybody, how all the individual behaviors combine. So when I was at NSA, everybody wore a badge because everybody wore a badge. Yes, you were not allowed in the building if you were not wearing a badge, but theoretically there's something that you could just put it down on your desk, but you don't because everybody else wore the badge constantly because that was just how things were done. When I went, when I did consulting for an airline, everybody, I was shocked to see everybody wore this badge despite the fact it was the most insecure organization otherwise. Why? Because that's the culture of an airline. Because everybody in an airport has to wear a badge, so everybody in the whole airline wore their badge. And it was just the way it was done, because that was the culture. And it was enforced because it was made a must. Now, the other part is, a lot of security programs are teaching people how to do, how to not do things wrong, as opposed to how to do things right. And that's another focus that people really need to have. How do you do things right? As opposed to, you know, I use the example of, it's a little dated now, but you have too many people being trained to be Elmer Fudds, being on the lookout for the Waskily Wabbit, where every time somebody's on the phone, the person's taught to think, is that the hacker trying to trick me? You know, they shouldn't be worried about who's on the other phone. They should be worried about, okay, I have a call. They are asking for certain types of information. I don't care who it is. I care how do I do my job correctly? How do I not distribute information improperly and so on? In terms of enforcement and transitioning into the technology side, are there any tools or techniques that we have out there to help automate the reduction of the human impact? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like, again, that's really the whole principle of you can stop stupid, which is we're applying safety sciences to the concept of cybersecurity of what I call user-initiated loss, because that's a critical concept going to what you're saying. Again, the whole book's on user-initiated loss, because the problem is not that a user is unaware. The problem is that a user is presented with the opportunities to initiate loss. Now, the user problem really should be, okay, how do I go ahead and ideally stop the user from being in the position to initiate loss. So anyway, you figure out, okay, how do I prevent the user from, for example, I'll use phishing messages because those are easy. Phishing messages, the first way to stop a user from initiating a loss is to have DMARC, for example. Don't let spoof messages come in. Mm -hmm. Then assuming that's not the problem, then you have email servers that have email filters and the filters weed out likely attacks. And then the system, then once it's there, then it gets delivered to the user and the user system should have, again, their own set of anti-malware and that should potentially weed out attacks as well. And then once the user's actually looking at attack that wasn't weeded out because all of a sudden, you know, the technology failed, then you should have a user experience that guides the user in theory 
to do the right thing and the user and how to guide the user would be, for example, saying this domain looks unusual. This, you know, this domain does not, this link does not go to where it says it does as an example. And then you have the awareness. This is where awareness comes in. Awareness tells the user, okay, how should you generally determine a message looks accurate? And then let's say the user goes ahead and makes the wrong decision. Then what should happen is like, cause you know, the reaction or the response for a phishing message is usually to attempt to download malware or an attempt to give up credentials or send them to an unsafe website. So if you get them to, you know, download and install malware, if you set up the system so that the user doesn't have permission to download and install malware, they're not given admin rights, for example, their rights are limited. Then if you're going to go ahead and, for example, trying to get the user to send out sensitive information saying, I'm the CEO, I need you to reply back with, you know, financial data, there should be data leak prevention software that stops the user from sending that out. Then there should also be um, web content filters that stop the user from going out to unsafe websites and giving up credentials or sending out other information. Like you're saying, there's a whole technology environment. Again, it's implementing safety sciences to the field of cybersecurity related to user actions related to cybersecurity. Yeah, so there's definitely compensating controls there. Well, no, if you are relying upon the user, I see so many awareness companies say, let make your user your last line of defense, conquer user error, and all that sort of stuff. That is so, so stupid. Yeah. If your whole security program relies upon the user as your last line of defense, you failed as a professional, you know, fundamentally. Because here's the thing, and a lot of people don't want to talk about this in the awareness space, but a user can do things that create damage either because they are, uh, are unaware, they might be rushed and have other things conflicting with doing things right. They might be aware, but they might have accidentally clicked the wrong button, or they could also be malicious. It doesn't matter. You know, when I talk about user-initiated loss, why the loss is initiated doesn't matter. It just matters that it happens and you need an environment that protects everything from lack of awareness to malice. Click, click, boom, game over. Doesn't matter if the sniper hit you with the kill shot or if it was self-inflicted. You know, end result is the same. Now let's consider the progression and advancement of AI and user behavior analysis technologies interacting with the human element. Does it help organizations? Does it hurt organizations? Can this tech be leveraged to create more intelligence around social engineering and phishing, or do you see that as a negative? Um, okay, so there's a couple of different things, and I'm going to answer a few different ways by telling you what's theoretically available. Okay. So, for example, you have user, you know, UEBA, user and entity behavioral analytics, and those type of tools out there start telling you what's normal, what's abnormal and try to stop things that look abnormal based upon that given user. So they're setting up that user's profile and trying to determine based upon the user's past experience, is this likely the user or is it somebody who's compromised the user simultaneously with, is the user a risky person in general? So you, have, you potentially have that. Then from an awareness perspective per se, 
You also have tools, for example, like a Cyber Ready. Cyber Ready is a, a phishing simulator company primarily, and they have behind that an AI engine that sends out phishing messages that end up being tailored to each and every user. In other words, if a user has demonstrated a level of proficiency, they can then upgrade the sophistication for future phishing messages to that user specifically. And that allows awareness to be tailored. It also, like for example, one of the problems when you do these phishing simulation campaigns as well as awareness in general, a lot of it to the average user is an insult to their intelligence for the most part. Mm-hmm. So if you keep sending somebody a phishing message, because you see all these vendors saying, we've got phishing, you know, we've got phishing down to 1% and maybe zero. Mm-hmm. That's kind of crappy. And the reason I say that is the only way you do that is by sending users the same phishing messages or the same basic messages again and again and again. That's like saying, I'm going to have give somebody a PhD in computer science because they've taken computer security 101 and we've got them to the point of getting 100 on computer security 101. I'm therefore going to give them a PhD in computer science. Mm-hmm. No, that sucks. What happens, for example, is you get send somebody to computer science 101, maybe they get a B, but they're still allowed to move on to 102 and maybe they get their next B or so on. You know, or, and then they get 201 and so on and take more advanced classes. Have they ever got 100? No. But they've had sufficient, they have sufficient knowledge to move to the next level of progression. That's what a good phishing campaign should be. Because if you ever get down to zero, it's showing you're not increasing the base knowledge level. You've just got everybody to the same pathetically low base of knowledge. No, that makes perfect sense. So let's start with this is ransomware.com and then level up from there. Now, do you see phishing campaigns that mirror real-time attacks or basing simulation efforts off of threat intel is beneficial? Well, again, that's kind of back to what a cyber-ready product type kind of does. Mm-hmm. But then you also have other products like everybody has their own, like all these different awareness companies have different strengths. So Another company in the awareness that has awareness and phishing simulation is Mimecast. Mimecast, their strength is that they provide a, an integrated suite of products regarding phishing and user-related error regarding phishing. And so part of that includes also doing threat intelligence on incoming phishing messages. So one thing that uh, Mimecast phishing solution does as an example is they can take actual attacks in progress, de-weaponize them, and then send them out as a phishing campaign to see how users would do with a real attack. Now, one of the reasons why you say, well, we've already weeded out the attack, and maybe it's like, well, the reason you want to do it, especially these days with most people working from home due to the COVID situation, is you can start saying, it's like, well, wait a second. People likely don't just use their you know, email, like their work email, they have their home accounts. They might not have the same type of quality of email filtering that the work environment does. And you want to ensure that they get trained and also just to see how would your company have done in this sort of case where the real attack got through 
so you know what to potentially improve your awareness program on for the future and what you were lacking. And you hit on all of these points and you mentioned your upcoming book, You Can Stop Stupid. How can our listeners get it? Would you mind giving us a little bit more information about the book? Of course, I would be happy to. But anyway, You Can Stop Stupid is available for pre-order on Amazon or just go to tiny.cc slash stupid book and you'll get to the Amazon link. At the same time, my base, you know, base footprint, most people can reach me on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. I'm not hard to find. There's only two Ira Winklers that I know of in the technology space. And then on the other one's a woman. <laughs> and then my website, irawinkler.com, it's currently being updated, but hopefully at some point somebody's going to hear this and it will finally be ready. Very good. Those are the best ways to reach me and also my company. If you do need any help on the human aspects of security or actually just about any other aspect of security as a whole, you know, you can reach me through securementum.com. And Mentum is M-E-N as in Nancy, T-E-M as in Mary. Securementum is actually translates to secure mind, but somebody was domain squatting. So how to get Mentum. <laughs> I actually prefer Securementum. <laughs> so Ira, looks like it's last call here. So I have one more question before you take off. If you were to open a cybersecurity themed bar, what would the name be and what would your signature drink be called? Oh, you know, what would the name be? I would almost have to Okay, so if it was me, I'd go I'll have to give you two answers because I can't think of which is best so quickly. I got to admit, I do like secure momentum being secure mind. I'm not going to lie. I do like that. At the same time, I might be called, I'm, I might call it stopping stupid as well. Because in, well, in a bar, I guess that's one of the ways you create stupid, but <laughs> <laughs> And then we'll call it the... And it sounds so cliche, but you know, the drink might be called the social engineer, which frankly I, I don't like because it is too cliche. Or, you know, the human spy. I like that. Although there is a place called the Safe House in Milwaukee, which is really a cool spy themed bar, so they might have taken my better ideas. And you will require ID to get in. Or a password. You actually got to go. <laughs> nice. If you actually like look that. up the safe house, you, you'll, if you actually look up the safe house on the internet or that Milwaukee, that Milwaukee bar restaurant type of thing, it's kind of on the cheesy side, but it is unique and, and fun. That's cool. I'll have to look that up. Thanks, Ira. I appreciate you taking out the time to share some of your amazing stories and insight. I look forward to reading your upcoming book, You Can Stop Stupid. And I wish you the best of luck. No, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Sure thing. Take care. Barcode patrons. If you enjoyed this episode and want an easy way to support the podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. If you're not on a Mac or iPhone, just visit the barcodepodcast.com slash reviews. I appreciate all the support. Cheers. Unfortunately, it's time to shut the bar down for this episode. Thanks for stopping in. See you next time. We'll save you a seat. Be sure to check us out at thebarcodepodcast.com.